If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome back to the podcast. This is going to be the final episode of 2023, and I want to use it to address the very first thing that's happening in the Catholic world in 2024. Because on January 1, the Catholic Church celebrates the Feast of Mary, Mother of God. It's not a normal liturgical feast day. It's a solemnity, one of the most important days on the annual calendar, and a holy day of obligation which Catholics are required to observe by attending Mass. So, I wanted to do this quick snapshot to address the question that inevitably comes up when this feast is mentioned to anyone who's curious about Catholicism. Because for most American Protestants, especially Evangelicals and Pentecostals, the very idea, the mere suggestion that Mary could be called the Mother of God is jarring, even deeply offensive or almost frightening, because it sounds like idolatry or even polytheism. It sounds like you're raising Mary to be some sort of fourth member of the Trinity, even the source of the Trinity. Telling my evangelical friends that we're celebrating the feast of Mary, Mother of God, confirms all their worst fears about Catholicism. I'm not sure why it should alarm them. Because the doctrine of Mary as the Mother of God is an ancient Christian doctrine. So ancient that it emerged at just around the same time that the canon of the New Testament itself, the list of official books included in the New Testament, was being decided. So. It's at least that old, and it didn't originate in Rome and Latin in the Middle Ages or something, but in the foundational Greek churches of Antioch and Alexandria around 100 or 200 or so AD. This doctrine was and is foundational for all the ancient churches, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Syrian, etc., and most of the major Protestant reformers during the Reformation accepted some form of it. Now, the doctrine of Mary as the mother of God was called in ancient Greek the doctrine of Theotokos, which is Greek for God-bearer. That's how it's formally referred to in theology. So I'm going to use that term rather than the English translation a lot in this episode. I'll I'll explain what it means in a bit, but I want to start with this question. Why is it that American evangelicals so reflexively recoil? The very idea of a doctrine which is so ancient and accepted and essential to the Christian faith. Well, the evangelical perspective is centered on their understanding of the doctrine of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. That's the principle that the Bible alone is the supreme authority for Christian truth, or the written text of the Bible alone. And anything not explicitly mentioned in the written text of the Bible especially as translated and read by evangelicals, is not to be accepted as true. So, because the term theotokos is not found in Scripture, 
they see it either as non-essential or as a man-made intrusion upon the New Testament. But I'd just like to point out that there are other theological terms that evangelicals do accept that aren't explicitly used in the New Testament. The most obvious is the term New Testament. Nowhere do the New Testament writers refer to each other's writings as a New Testament. But after the death of the apostles, the church gathered their writings together. It recognized them as divinely inspired, and it declared them to be a New Testament. So, the idea of a New Testament is in their writings, but the church later assigned a term to describe that idea. Another example is the Trinity itself. The New Testament describes God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the idea is there, but the church later assigned a theological term to describe that idea, even though that term isn't in the text itself. Theotokos is like that. The idea is in Scripture, but not the word. The church later assigned a theological term to describe the idea. But evangelicals even resist this term, and thus they reject a thoroughly biblical idea. Why? I think it comes from their natural skepticism, suspicion, even hostility towards Catholicism, which is usually based on misunderstandings and even myths about what the Catholic Church believes, teaches, and practices. You see, for most evangelicals, their default belief is that the Catholic Church invented and added all of these doctrines in the Middle Ages or something, which distorted the pure text of the New Testament. And so, they're reflexively suspicious of not only the term Theotokos, but the idea that it was assigned to describe. And the title, Mother of God, sets off all kinds of alarm bells within evangelical circles, because at first glance, it makes it sound like Mary is the mother of the Godhead or the mother of the Trinity. Even when a Catholic or Greek Orthodox theologian explains that that isn't what the Theotokos doctrine means, evangelicals are afraid to overemphasize Mary's role in salvation. They want to maintain a clear distinction between the worship of Christ and the reverence of biblical figures, including Mary. And so, even while they acknowledge Mary's blessed role in the salvation story, they predominantly focus on her obedience and her humility as depicted in the Gospels, especially around the Nativity. They engage with her role in the Nativity narrative but they refrain from delving into the Christological implications that led to the doctrine of Theotokos. And even when you explain it to them carefully and they cautiously admit that it sounds technically valid, they de-emphasize it. They want to keep the focus on Christ's death and resurrection, not wander into theological and philosophical discussions of his divine nature and the implications for understanding Mary. They see all of that as sort of superfluous to the evangelical mission of preaching the gospel. And so they absolutely loathe giving her any titles beyond what amounts to essentially as Jesus' mom. 
Now, I spent most of my adult life in ministry as an evangelical pastor and writer, so I understand and I deeply appreciate their commitment to preserving the integrity of the scriptures, to preaching the gospel, to a sort of cautious approach to doctrine, and keeping our eyes on Jesus. I know that most of them respect Mary, but they fear that the term mother of God will lead to a misunderstanding or a distortion of the gospel. So, I hope that in the next few minutes, I can at least explain to anyone who's listening why the Theotokos doctrine doesn't distort the gospel, but makes it more powerful. So, let's start from the beginning. The concept of Mary as the Theotokos, the God-bearer or mother of God, emerged in the early church during its first one or two hundred years. As we'll see in the next few minutes, the idea is in Scripture, just as the idea of the Trinity is in Scripture, even though it took a few generations after the apostles for both of those ideas to be fully unpacked and given theological terminology and articulated as fully formed Christian doctrines. And that's the way a lot of Christian doctrines became defined, through debates over misunderstandings and heresies. So, in the case of the Trinity, In the early church, there were Christians and non-Christian critics who began to describe God in ways that weren't in line with the written or oral teachings of the apostles. For example, there were some who said that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were three different gods. There were others who said that they were just modes and forms of appearances or faces of the same divine being. And so, the bishops of the early church, known as the church fathers, wrote and occasionally held councils in which they defined the truth, that he is one God, yet in three distinct persons. And they used the term Trinity to describe this. In church history, these were known as the Trinitarian controversies that defined the Trinitarian doctrines and condemned the heresies that denied the doctrine of the Trinity. In the same way, there were Christological controversies in the early church debates over the nature of Jesus Christ. For example, was he God who just sort of wrapped himself in human form for a little while, like a disguise? Or was he a very holy man who God adopted as his son? Or were his two natures divided and distinct, so he was part God and part man? Now, all of those were heretical positions that were taken in the early church or misunderstandings by critics of Christianity. Even while the apostles were alive, they were defending the truth, that Christ had two natures. He was both fully God and fully man. But those two natures could not be divided. Because at the moment of his conception in Mary's womb, these two natures were forever completely fused. God became a man in every way possible, even being capable of dying. And a man's nature was forever grafted into God. And so this unique being that the incarnation produced was at the same time both the second person of the Trinity, the divine Logos, but also Jesus of Nazareth. And yet through the incarnation, those two identities became the Christ, the anointed one, the Lord. Now, every faithful Christian, Catholic, 
Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, whatever, affirms that truth about the Christ. Because to deny it is to deny Christianity itself. Because unless he is fully God and fully man, with those two natures fused into the Christ, the gospel can't be true. He could not be the perfect sacrifice that washes our sins clean. He could not be God who paid the price of our sin. He could not be the Messiah. He could not be the risen Lord, the one who makes our resurrection possible. He could not be the Lord over all who will renew all things at the end of time. But in the first centuries of the church, lots of supposedly Christian leaders did deny that truth. And it was through those debates and councils of the early church that they were declared heretics. So, around the year 200 AD, for example, a heresy known as docetism arose. It denied that Christ was fully human. A few decades later, the Arian heresy arose. It denied that he was fully God. Now, both of those heresies were condemned by the bishops of the Catholic Church, which is to say all the bishops of the church in the world, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, which gave us the Nicene Creed as a proper declaration of the truth of the Trinity and the identity of Christ. But these conflicts over the nature of Christ raised other questions, notably this. Who or what exactly was in Mary's womb? Who or what exactly did she give birth to? Did she just give birth to the human Jesus, but not the divine Christ? Because if she just conceived a human being who then, at some point later in the gestation of the fetus or at the moment of birth or something, had a divine nature added to or infused into him, then the heretics like the Docetists or the Arians or, or others like the Nestorians were correct, and Jesus was not fully and completely and simultaneously both God and man. As the church rightly declared, based on Scripture and the teaching of the apostles, Christ was, from the moment of conception, a fusion of divine and human natures, what they called in Greek a hypostatic union. The person that Mary conceived, carried, and gave birth to was, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, nothing less than the God-man. This truth was drawn from the scriptures and it was unpacked in the generations following the apostles, often by bishops and theologians who had been mentored or discipled by the apostles themselves or within a generation or two by those who had been discipled by the apostles. So there was a direct line of connection between the teaching authority of the apostles and the church fathers. For example, consider the church father Ignatius. He was the archbishop of Antioch, the city mentioned in the New Testament as the place where followers of Jesus were first given the name Christians. Now, Ignatius died around 108 BC, which means he was the leader of the church in Antioch in the generation or so after the death of the apostles. And in his writings, he unpacked this idea that the child in Mary's womb was fully God and fully man from the moment of conception. Or consider the church father Irenaeus, bishop of Lyon, who was discipled by Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who had been personally instructed by the apostle John, 
So he had this apostolic legacy. And in Irenaeus's writings around 150 AD, he attacked heretical doctrines which denied the fusion of Christ's natures and upheld Mary as the pivotal figure that made the God-man, and thus the gospel, possible. Now, I could go on mentioning church fathers like Tertullian, Athanasius, and others who, in defending against Christological heresies, progressively explored and unpacked the nature of what really happened in the Incarnation. But still, these heresies continued, just as they do today with groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or any number of others who deny the fullness of the Incarnation. And so, the church had to define, once and for all, what it was exactly that occurred in Mary's womb at the moment of conception, and who it was that she bore and gave birth to. And that led to the Council of Ephesus, held in 431 AD. To put an end to this controversy, the bishops of the Catholic Church, which is to say, the bishops of all the Christian churches in the world, declared that Mary was the Theotokos, the God-bearer, because he who was conceived in her womb was, from that moment, nothing less than fully God and fully man. He was the Christ, and that made her the God-bearer. Now, I know evangelicals who, when this is explained, will say, okay, sure, I can buy it in a sort of technical, theological sense if you put it that way. But to call her the mother of God is just a step too far because it implies that she was mother of the Trinity. And my response to them is, you're not listening. Stop and listen. No one has ever claimed that she was the mother of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one has ever claimed that she was some pre-existent divine being. So don't put those words in the mouth of what the church has taught informally for 2,000 years and formally declared for 1,600 years. But also, don't downplay her role. Mary wasn't just the oven that the Christ bun was baked in. She wasn't just the mother of his human nature. In the incarnation, God became man, and human nature was fused with God. And Mary wasn't just an artificial womb, and she wasn't just an egg donor. Her DNA fused with what the Holy Spirit contributed to the Incarnation. Mary's DNA ran through his veins. When he was up there bleeding on that cross, Mary's DNA was in each drop. The blood that washes us clean from sin contains her DNA. As John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son as the sacrificial lamb by which all could be saved. But the same can be said for Mary. She also gave her only begotten son, who happened to be the same son as God gave for the salvation of all who would believe so that they may have eternal life. That is the undeniable truth that the church has taught since the time of the apostles. Look, I recognize how all of this creeps out evangelicals because they don't want to glorify Mary or draw attention to her and away from Jesus. 
but I want them to understand how important the doctrine of the Theotokos is, how necessary it is to safeguard against heresies and error. The doctrine that Mary is the mother of God has never been about glorifying Mary for her own sake. It always was and always will be about honoring and protecting and elevating the most profound truth of all, the truth of the Incarnation. That's why in Mass we bow at the mention of how Jesus was made incarnate through the Virgin Mary. We bow at that moment because that was the moment when our salvation was made possible and real. Yes, Jesus still had to grow up and die and rise again, but none of that was possible without the miracle of the Incarnation. And that miracle would not have been possible without Mary saying, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to thy will. So, that is why we celebrate the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, on January 1. Because through honoring her, we honor him, and we thank the Father for the gift of the Christ. So, if you're listening to this before January 1, make sure you get to church that day and celebrate the solemnity. But before you do, will you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow and like this podcast and leave a review on Apple podcasts or on our website because that really helps move the algorithm and make this show more apparent to more people and easier to find in searches. And would you also go to our website, consideringcatholicism.com, check out what we have there, and would you consider supporting the podcast so we can expand the ministry? I'm releasing this just a couple of days before the end of 2023, but I'll be back to join you with new episodes in 2024. God bless.